Welcome to the Freedom Story Project podcast, sponsored by John Brown Lives in North Elba, New York. Freedom Story Project is a national Our Story Bridge project that collects and shares personal narratives recounting the activism and engagement of everyday people working for justice and for human and civil rights, not only here at home, but around the world. Freedom Story Project is made possible by a 2022 AARP Community Challenge Grant. In this, our fourth episode, you will hear a sampling of stories that represent some of the themes that Freedom Story Project covers. Each story is an example of the issues addressed by these diverse storytellers and can be found within this powerful oral history project. You will hear inspirational and educational stories about individuals' experiences with immigration, indigenous history, disabilities, LGBTQI issues, and African-American history. Listen to these storytellers share their unique, personal stories and how their experiences shaped who they are today. Our first story is partly told in Spanish by Irma Maldonado and translated into English by her friend, Monique Weston Clegg. This inspiring story on immigration, challenges, and community resilience is about a family from Mexico that found affordable housing in Keene through Community Action and Habitat for Humanity. Here is Finding a House in Keene. Hola, mi nombre es Irma. Uh, yo soy de México. Uh, mi amiga Monique va a contar la historia de mi familia buscando una casa permanente para vivir en Keene o en Kimbale. Hello, my name is Monique Weston Clegg. I am Irma's friend, and I'm going to translate what she just said. Hello, my name is Irma. I am from Mexico. I, ha I am going to ha tell you my story of our search for housing for me and my family when we came from Queens to live in Keene and Keene Valley. Okay, I this is Monique speaking. I'm going to go on. When I first met Irma and Isaac, it was because somebody said, oh, there's a woman in Keene Valley who might like to learn English. And so I came, and we got, to get, we got together, and I got to know the family. They were living in one house that was owned by the owners of a restaurant where Isaac worked. Isaac had come. He was had been a cook in Queens, and he was brought here because he thought there was a better work opportunity and a possibility of housing, and it was told also a very good school for his children. Uh, he worked extremely long hours to the point that it, many of us said, this is not healthy. You can't continue that way. One day, I, met, I, I was going to teach Irma English when Isaac was home, and I said, Isaac, have you a day off? No, he said, I finally quit. He had had enough. The same day, an hour or two later, one of the owners of the restaurant business came and said, the family has to get out of this house today. Irma protested, saying that wasn't legal. She was correct. Nevertheless, uh, the owner took Isaac to get a uh, U-Haul. And when they were back with the U-Haul and started loading their furniture, their belongings, people came to help out thanks to Peg Wilson putting out the word that they needed help. 
And it was a beginning of many years, I would say, since then of community support for this family. Very hard for immigrant family to come to a strange town, and especially for Irma, who didn't even know the language. Um, they spent several years in various housing housing conditions. And when they're kicked out of the house, uh, they first found a, a place to live at the bottom of Hurricane Road, thanks to Bob Biesmeyer, who had a friend whose house was on the market. They were there for eight months, which took them over the winter. When the house was sold, Bob came to rescue again, and they were lived at the top of Hurricane Road in one of his buildings for a month. When that was, he had a tenants coming, they moved, he the family then moved to my brother's summer cottage, summer only, so that was temporary, and they were there for a month. Uh, Bob then, again, came to rescue. Through word of mouth, he found out about a small apartment in Keene, and that's where the family lived for the next two to three years. Um, but that too was, that house, the Kuplex house was also on the market. So where were they going to live? It was still uncertain. One day, Jer Jim and Charity Marlat came to me and said, we think that his family would be a perfect candidates for Habitat House. Um, when Jim and Charity came, talked to Isaac, Hernandez, and Irma Maldonado, they have different last names, and told them the possibility of a Habitat House in Keene Valley, they could hardly believe it. I remember they thought this was magic. It happened. So the Habitat House was built with the help of a lot of community members, and Irma and Isaac put in work for it too. Irma did a lot of cooking for people for the lunch breaks, you know, Isaac as well. And thankfully, by summer of 2017, they were able to move into this lovely little house and they decided to have a celebration to thank everybody with a big barbecue. John Sampson came from Keene Valley Community Church to give a blessing to the house, and all kinds of friends and neighbors came to celebrate the fact that the family now had permanent housing in Keene Valley. In our second story, Joseph Bruchak tells us about embracing his Abenaki heritage, even at a time when it was not widely recognized by others and shares with us his book, Hidden Roots, which reflects Joseph's feelings about how our commonalities are stronger than our differences. His story provides a peek into the history and experiences of indigenous lives and culture. Listen to Hidden Roots, the Western Abenaki Nation. Why ni ton pa kolo my friends? De Luisi sozap alanoki da uzid. My name is Joseph, or the peaceful one. I am Joseph Bruchak, a member of the Nolhegan Abenaki Nation of Vermont, and uh, an elder member of the Elders Council. My own background is that of a person who was not raised with a deep awareness of my tribal history. I grew up at a time when many people in our community would not talk outside of their own families about their tribal background, a time when, unlike today, there were no people recognized by state or federal government here in New England who could be called Western Abenaki, my nation. That is different now. 
I grew up, though, raised by my grandparents on the native side, was always aware of that ancestry. Um, my grandfather was so dark-skinned that everybody knew he was Indian. In fact, when he passed, uh, people kept coming up to me at his funeral saying, you know, your grandfather was an Abenaki Indian. And I'd say, I know. They say, how do you know he was my grandfather? But that awareness of that kind of a difference, being a different person, uh, led me throughout my life to always uh, sympathize with those who had less representation or opportunity. From my college years on, I was involved in the civil rights movement, marched with Martin Luther King. I was involved in the anti-war movement, read poetry with Robert Bly against the Vietnam War, went to West Africa as a volunteer teacher for three years. And then when I came back to the United States and began college teaching, for eight years, I ran a college program inside a maximum security prison. One of the things that's very important to understand about our Abenaki or Abenaki history is that it was deeply impacted in the state of Vermont in the 1930s by something called the Eugenics Project. It was a project to sterilize undesirable people, people who were, as they quote, called them idiots or criminal or having some kind of physical degeneracy, which they felt was passed on from generation to generation, even if that degeneracy was what they called criminality, which usually meant you were poor. So it was very difficult for many people who were Beneke to have a recognized tribal relationship. I know many people in Swanton, Vermont, who can tell me of grandparents, actually aunts and uncles who had no children, who were sterilized as part of this project, which was done very surreptitiously. You were given a free medical treatment. You signed an agreement, and the next thing you knew, you couldn't have children. And this was only apologized to the Vermont, Vermont Abenaki Nation within the last decade by the University of Vermont and by the state of Vermont. I wrote a book that has to do with this called Hidden Roots. It's about a boy who is living in the Adirondacks where many Abenaki people ended up who doesn't know about his native heritage. He gradually finds out about it and about the eugenics project through relatives, including a grandfather he never realized was his grandfather, but simply posed as a member of the family because he looked too Indian. So to my mind, those people who we see as different from us are often the same as us. And those who we recognize as native are people who are close to a tribal tradition, to the earth, to family, and to story. And I tried through my own work as a storyteller and writer to re-energize that and to give people the courage to tell their own stories. I thank you, my friends, for listening to me. May your journeys be good. Our third story is told by Benjamin Giraud, a boy with autism who, after being labeled a troublemaker, gets the opportunity to share these alienating experiences from his perspective through a poem. Benjamin's story is a wonderful example of one of Freedom Story Project's stories that discusses disabilities and how sharing experiences can help others feel connected and understood. Here is I Am Odd, I Am New. My name is Benjamin Giroux, autistic author of I Am Odd, I Am New. Today, I'm talking about the injustices dealt with by those of us on the spectrum. It all started when I was a kid, first grade, first day, really. I was coming in from recess, and the teacher told all of us to go to our desks and continue working on our projects. 
me not knowing exactly what she meant, I went over to my desk and I was standing there working on my project. I was still excited and jumpy from recess and the teacher got upset at me. I had no idea why. She was just upset. One thing led to another and I was sent to the principal's office being known as the troubled child who couldn't deal with authority. This would be a very common occurrence for most of my time in school. Every day sent to the principal's office because I don't listen or I'm making trouble or getting upset. It was tough and it took me a long time to get out of that and really it never did end. When I was 10, however, I finally got a t chance to explain how I feel when it one day during April, I was given an assignment for a class to write a poem. This poem is known as an I am poem. It gives you the first two letter words of a sentence and you have to fill in the rest. I am, I feel. And one thing led to another. I ended up writing a poem straight from my heart. I wrote it willy nilly, really. It was just as easy as flowing water. I kept writing until I felt like it was done. When I showed it to my parents, they loved it at first, but after reading it again, they felt the deeper meaning. After that, I got really nervous. I didn't want to show my classmates, and really, I never did. The day we were supposed to go in, I got sick. I was scared, and I just had a panic attack. I never got to read it. I got to read it after school in front of five or so kids during a poem reading. They liked it, but I never found out if anyone else did. After a while, online, the poem really took off. Multiple celebrities shared it, hundreds of likes, shares, but one of them stood out, Anne Rice. She shared my poem, and my dad, basically being my manager, took it upon himself to find a way to protect my words so no one else would steal it. And one thing led to another. She helped me find my manager, which she has helped me so much, and I owe everything to her. She helped me get through my struggles of trying to save my book get it out there. And now it's in bookstores everywhere and it's helped thousands upon millions of people. And I'm so very proud of that. And I finally understand that being autistic and different doesn't mean that you're bad. It doesn't mean that you're less. And we on the autistic spectrum deserve a chance. And all that we need is for you guys to give it to us. In our next story, Pastor John Sampson tells us about how the Keene Valley Congregational Church became an open and affirming place of worship. As an example of a story that represents LGBTQI related discussions, Pastor John's story reflects his hope that his congregation and others can help people live, as he says, authentically into their spiritual lives and into their sense of gender and sexuality. Listen to How We Became an Open and Affirming Church.
Hello, my name is John Sampson, and I'm the pastor of Keene Valley Congregational Church here in Keene Valley, New York. I want to share with you a experience that my church had in becoming an open and affirming congregation. Just to, sort, to, just to start this out with a little bit of history, I think many people will know that traditionally the Christian church has not been very open and welcoming to different kinds of sexual and gender minorities. Starting back in the 70s, the United Church of Christ, my denomination, began to discern a different way forward. And through a series of steps, ultimately in the early 80s, launched an initiative called Open and Affirming. And what this initiative did was to invite churches around the country to welcome LGBTQI people into all the different aspects of church life. Fast forward to 2014 when Keene Valley Congregational Church was doing a search for a new pastor. They were working with a mentor who was helping, you know, answer questions, shepherd them through the process. And during that process, someone asked this person, oh, well, would you consider being our pastor? And to their great shock and chagrin, the person said no. And when they asked the person why they wouldn't even consider it, the person said, because you're not an open and affirming congregation. That was the first time anyone on that search committee had heard those words. They had no idea what this person was talking about. And so over the course of time, they did some investigation, they contacted people, they talked to people, they read some things, and they began to understand what it would mean to become an open and affirming congregation. And they said, we think we want to pursue this. Ultimately, the search for the pastor led to uh, the invitation for me to become the pastor of the church, which I accepted. Starting in November of 2016, I became the pastor of KVCC. And soon after that, we began the process of becoming an open and affirming church. This was always a lay-led process. And throughout a time of over a year, through Bible studies and concerts and discussions, we built consensus to become an open and affirming church. And in that process, we created a covenant statement, which was voted on by the church in a annual meeting. And over 60 people voted for that covenant statement. There were only two dissensions. It's a wonderful opportunity for us to live more deeply into Christ's invitation for us to love our neighbors as ourselves. So, we, we um, approved this statement, but that wasn't the end of the road for open and affirming. To become an open and affirming church means you're always accessing this invitation more deeply and more profoundly. So over the years, we were the co-founder of the very first Keen Pride Festival. We uh, fly a pride flag during Pride Month. And this year, we had the opportunity to have a presence in Saranac Lake at the Tri-Lakes Pride Festival. One of the most inspiring and moving moments during that time up in Saranac Lake was meeting a father and his daughter. The father and um, his daughter's mother had divorced, and the daughter was now living with her mother and her mother's new boyfriend, who was very conservative Christian. And at home, she was hearing all kinds of messages that did not support her in her journey of understanding who she was um, in her sexuality and in her gender. They came up to me because I was wearing a t-shirt that said, this queer pastor loves you. And she wanted to get a picture with me because she wanted 
a lifeline in her home to know that there was a different way forward, a different way to understand God's invitation and love for her in her own skin and as she had been created. This is one of the most rewarding and meaningful foundations to what it means to be an open and affirming church. And I look forward to the future and how we can continue to support all of those searching to live authentically into their spiritual life and into their own sense of sexuality and gender. Thank you. Our final story, told by Mignon Tyler, is an excellent example of a storyteller who shares her experiences as an African-American woman. Mignon tells us about her childhood growing up in segregated Kansas City, where she was one of only three students to integrate a local school after the Brown v. Board of Education ruling. Mignon's story is an inspiring one, as she describes how after she attended Howard University to become a social worker, she used her own experiences and education to support, help, and work in the African-American community. Here is Moving Towards a Better World. My name is Mignon Tyler. I was born in Kansas City, Missouri, a child of segregation. Um, I started off in a little community of black people totally surrounded by a huge white sea. In our neighborhood, we had a segregated school. One room when I started elementary school, two rooms by the time I had finished, but my mother didn't want me to go to that two-room school. So I went across town, traveling probably 45 minutes or an hour, to go to a black school that had uh, more classes, more resources, what my mother felt was a better environment. I first went to an integrated school after board, Brown versus Board of Education in the seventh grade. From there I went to a high school where I was one of three black students in my graduating class. It was a challenging time because they weren't used to having black students in the classrooms and they had no expectations of us as black students. They assumed we knew nothing, could do nothing, and the environment was such that you can't be in this class, you can't do that. We don't want you there. I went from there to a college in the Bible Belt. At the time I went to college there, they had had very few black students, but my first year there, we were probably about 75 black students in a student body of five or 6,000. That was an extremely hostile environment. Um, the teachers and the administration did everything they could to put roadblocks in our way. But I was determined nothing was going to defeat me. I was one of 13 students who graduated on time. The rest didn't make it for a variety of reasons. After I finished undergrad, I moved to Washington, D.C. with a roommate. And the following uh, September, I started graduate school as a social worker to get my master's in social work at Howard University. At that time, something started happening to me because I was trying to decide what kind of social worker I wanted to be. 
What I later realized was as a result of my experiences as a child, my experiences in the several states where I lived, in the two other countries where I lived, that I wanted to do things in social work that helped us to give better services to our clients. So that from then on, no matter what the job, whether it was in the community, whether it was working for the agency where I worked, I wanted to develop policies, develop services, challenge our organization to provide services, better services to the black community. Um, and what I realized after all of those years is that there were so many things that we had in common as people. But I also realized that everybody's story was unique. And the bottom line was that I wanted to find a way that we could help people to understand that what we have in common is what could make our world a better place to live. Thank you for listening to the fourth episode of the Freedom Story Project podcast. If you would like to listen to more stories or want to add your own story, visit freedomstoryproject.org. Freedom Story Project is made possible by a 2022 AARP Community Challenge Grant. Freedom Story Project collects and broadcasts three to five minute audio stories and related photographs online, centering around themes of freedom and justice, human and civil rights, activism and engagement at local, national, and international levels. One of our goals is to inspire younger generations to tell their stories and connect to their communities and these issues, including through powerful personal narratives by elders who share their experiences. Freedom Story Project uses the Our Story Bridge methodology, making stories easily accessible and shareable. To learn more about Our Story Bridge, please visit ourstorybridge.org. Thank you.